0: Welcome back to Cause Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Tower of Swallows Chapter 7, and I am joined once again by my friend Joshua Rapier. Hello! Hello, hello! So, this uh, chapter is very important, mm-hmm. especially for the Avalok section, but uh, you joined me uh, primarily because uh, it had a, uh, the, the later half of the, the chapter has a distinct comedic bent. Uh, to it, which is uh, very different from the last chapter you joined, <laughs> which was one of the bleakest. Indeed it was. Keeping that line of the the cutesy, end-of-chapter uh, comedic stuff, what are your thoughts on the knight's errant, uh, uh, you know, of uh, Dandelion being known as Viscount Julian in uh, <laughs> Tucson. All that. You've just scratched the surface of that, that'll become important later, but as someone who just encountered it, what is your opinion on
1: that? Uh, Well, first of all, I'd like to clarify, I found this whole chapter funny, like, not just the later Ah. half. Well, yeah, I do love the knights, Uh, but I found all the dialogue in the first half, like, really witty, and uh, I'm sure we'll get into it, there's a lot of stuff to get into, Mm -hmm. but with Dandelion, yeah, that was... uh, that was revealed. I was like, "Yeah, this may as well happen to the guy." It does not surprise me here. <laughs> he'd he'd fuck himself into royalty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Guys stick to hands a lot. Yeah, uh, we'll meet a Henrietta soon.
0: Um, in mm-hmm. in everything going on with Tousa, I did not have the benefit of not knowing this, uh, because uh, Tucson is a major location in The Witcher Three DLC: Blood and Wine and so i got i got experienced to the and got used to the 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 absurdity that is the night errands upon so my word, and uh you know just the 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 ridiculousness in the fairy tale land of Tucson, which will become important later and uh, and will be explained why everybody there is fucking crazy <laughs> um I look forward to it. yeah, so uh I, you know it's It's a cute little thing i I just wanted to know, well you know, what your general gist of it was, uh, you know, going in because you have no expectation for this, you've never played the game, nope and, and they haven't gotten to this in the Netflix show, and so suddenly, uh you know, you got a very absurd night showing up. You know, yelling, "Pon my word. Yeah, Yeah. Losing his sword midway through because his helmet got dented. And so he has to go search through the bloody bodies to go find his sword. (laughs) Meanwhile, Geralt gets to have a quip. You know, uh, I don't want to ever hear that, uh, you know, uh, drugs don't harm you or whatever. Uh, When he slices a guy in half, basically, because the guy was high. It is intentionally farcical. Which I think is what we needed because of how Definitely. bleak this book has been.
1: Yeah, this guy feels like he came from a Monty Python's Holy Grail sketch. Yes, and just ended up in all of the Rings. And I love that juxtaposition. That's it's a really not a direction I expect to go in, but uh, it's really welcome after how bleak the previous chapter we, we talked about was.
0: Yeah, like uh, this kind of previously uh, comedic chapter back uh, early on in the book. Uh, to break up the series stuff, but from then on, it's been pretty much you know, and it has some like intentionally comedic moments, like when uh, uh Milva s- literally has to spank Kahir and Geralt with her belt, uh, <laughs> and be team mom. This is the bonkers bit, you know. Um, I don't know, like you you mentioned that it has a sort of a Terry Pratchett vibe. Uh, yeah. in our text, and I've sadly never. Ah, uh, read anything by Terry Pratchett. Um, but um, one of his cohorts, Neil Gaiman. This <laughs> feels very Neil Gaiman in the way he does things. Things will be very dark, very dour, and then he'll just have a random fairy tale character show up to, ah, uh, for no reason other than the <laughs> to laugh.
1: Yeah, I, that's very accurate.
0: You, uh, I remember you mentioning, uh, in our text about the crossbow, uh, aside. Uh, and how that cracked you up in, intensely. The The Gabriel crossbow is basically, it, it's cheap and it's affordable and uh, it's easily manufactured. And so, like, the, 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 the advertisement,
1: yeah,
0: <laughs> everybody should have a Gabriel crossbow to protect you from robbers and bandits. You know, it'll, it'll be the nice thing. Which, of course, worked, because now all robbers
1: and bandits have Gabriel crossbows. Yeah, that, is that is something straight from Discworld uh, novels.
0: Uh, if you remember, he actually did the same joke prior, um, in the previous episode you were in, actually, the chapter you were in,
1: uh,
0: when Bonhart and Siri are at the Weaponsmith, uh, they, they, uh, uh, there's a brief aside about one of the weapons having an engraving on it, and the engraving means, you know, uh, do not draw me without honor, uh do not sheathe me uh you know uh without honor as well basically you know it's a bit more complicated than that and basically the 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 joke there is it, it it's a it's a symbolic meaning of that this is supposed to be a a knight's weapon which of course means it ended up in the hands of all bandits
1: <laughs> yeah i do remember laughing at that but it was uh, buried underneath a lot of other stuff happening in that chapter whereas yeah. this one you know, as you said, the later half becomes even more comedic, so it just works with that tone, and that just made me (laughs) laugh a lot more. Mm -hmm. The
0: final half of this chapter being action and comedy, uh, I think really helps, not only because you are... uh, The the previous bits have been pretty, you know, dour, but also Mm -hmm. that... The first half of this chapter, well, you know, it has witty lines and stuff, you're deal you're you're dealing with some pretty heavy topics in regards to eugenics. Uh, to have suddenly to switch to girls riding a gigantic kobold <laughs> um and taking out bandits with a uh, with a bunch of weird ass knights. And doing quips, action hero quips. It's a it's a breath of fresh air.
1: Yeah. And then it gets very Wicker Man towards the end, which was another great little addition.
0: Mm-hmm. Now that we have really gotten into series Bloodline twice now from two different mm. perspectives, you know, I I want your take on how the elder blood has been looked at throughout the books, from going from like this big magical unknowable thing to this, you know weird ass destiny thing whatever that means to you know the lodge talking about uh you know intentionally uh continuing it on and you know uh the 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 activator and the dormant gene um and using it to sort of uh prop up magic and have magic rulers and then you have Avalok, who was part of the the original program for the elves and uh, his personal connection to it um, and his, them basically doing eugenics and wanting to create the perfect being and that ended up blowing up in their face when Mm -hmm. Lara Lara Doran, you know, decided that she had no interest in that and fell in love with a human. And we've heard the story of Lara Doran for Mm -hmm. a very long time on various different accounts. What is your take on that, as your, like obviously, you had me spoil bits and pieces of it um uh, mm. way back, way back when, but i tr- I tried to keep some stuff under the rug. So what's been your take on how your view of the elder blood has changed over time?
1: Yeah. well, I was about to say, uh, I have had hindsight in this given both the show and the topics we've discussed in the past but yeah i really liked how this chapter dived deeper into that and the comparison that comes to mind is it turns the usual you know destiny's child you know the blood of the seventh daughter of the seventh father whatever nonsense and it boils it down to essentially dog breeding you know it's like you get purebred pedigree dogs and you breed them for generations gain uh the perfect one you can prance around for a dog show and have that kind of brutal reality put in this kind of fantasy setting and that you know that harsh reality that seri was just like that kind of experiment gone wrong because someone had a genuine romantic interest it's all very fascinating different stuff you don't really see this in other stories i could think of
0: yeah it really calls into question i think the the entire idea of the destiny you know, we, there have been talks in the, in the, the text itself about Cirelli's destiny as a whole, and whether it's a real thing or not. Um, and when you find out that it is, you know, in a eugenics experiment, last book, um, you know, you get the sense of, because sorcerers are involved, yeah, sure, it's artificial, but maybe they've figured out some way to magic it up. And then you'll find out in this, you know, that it was all just pretty much a petty thing, mm. uh, you know, from, you know, uh, a group of elves who felt like they were becoming less dominant as the, the species and that they're, um, and, and that the, the humans were vermin to them. and, that backfired. And so that leads into the question of is Siri's destiny even real? Is this Ithilien's prophecy even remotely yeah. true? If it is, how much? Uh if <laughs> anything, you know? The, the last few words that uh that uh Avalak and Geralt share is you will find her you will get siri back only to lose her again so like is there such a thing as prophecy and destiny in this world if it is all the product of intervention Mm. not by some divine being not from some unknowable magic force but through one's own actions the entire reason siri is connected to this is because one one woman who happened to be an elf Fell in love with a random human who happened to fall in love with her, and that's it. No divine being, no magical anything. It's just human nature,
1: mm. or elven nature, rather. other yes. successes. But yeah, the, the take I'm thinking of, like literally just now, is like prophecies of other elven propaganda. Like they're trying to do damage control to their fuck ups to like okay, this has gone out of control, let's create some, you know, prophecy that will twist people's perceptions of what's really going on. There's a a great line in Babylon 5
0: about prophecy of, um, you know, prophecy is a poor guide to the future. And that prophecy is just uh, a guess that comes true. And uh, at any point in time, you could overt that guess. If the prophecy says, you you know, you live for a thousand years, you could take a gun to your head right now and be done with it. What is prophecy, in a sense? And it could be propaganda. Uh, it could be something else entirely. Because this leans prophecy has become so important and we've seen it from different characters' perspectives, everybody kind of has a different interpretation of it. That is the thing about prophecies is that they are oblique; they are just detailed enough to make sense, but loose enough to be interpreted any way you want there There may be a time in which you know the the wolf's blizzard come comes about and the seed that was sown turns the you know the the world in flames. but what does that even mean, you yes. know? It being elfin propaganda, I think you, you you you're looking at that way is is kind of interesting because of Avalok's connection to everything, mm. because he was involved at the very beginning, because he knew dorn personally, and, and with with Avalok of all, you know we we have seen the way elves are. They are this really uppity people. Uh they they d- were not the product of evolution uh as we find out in this uh they were some sort of magical being where they came from they do not know and because of that they have an air of superiority they live for so long uh they were not the product of you know evolution and so seeing through the elves eyes we have seen uh the loss of the loss of hope the loss of empire but also the arrogance and with that I think comes uh the natural question of Avalok as a character. We'll be seeing more of him, but what are your thoughts on him now?
1: Well I loved his introduction. Like that was such a dip well, so he's he's the type of character who in any other story would be the typical imposing figure who tries to explain everything in a grand superior tone. And here he's just chilling out in a cave, he's just painting, and Geralt's like, uh, what are you doing there, buddy? And he's like Oh, I'm painting a prehistoric painting. Uh, I... Can I give me some advice? And Gail's like, they need bigger dicks. And that that's <laughs> a bizarre introduction. I just can't help but love it. Uh, oh. And the fact you get from that weird deduction, you get this interesting tale on how history works, like how people perceive history and that kind of thing. With you know that 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 art, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful introduction. Uh, and the way he and he's our guide into this ancient city into more of a world view of the elven worlds. As far as tour guys go, yeah, he's very good. He's a very good point of view type character that this series has a lot of. So the fact, in my mind, he stands amongst many of the others, yeah, I'd say that's a good sign. His painting of the Bison is (laughs) the ultimate F.U. by
0: an elf. And (laughs) it is is very much the the kind of... um, so poland had a difficult time throughout history as most people know uh being Mm -hmm. conquered gaining freedom being conquered again etc and so what is polish history but suffering and what is polish history but you know the uh what people tell you is history because you know it started out as a bunch of disparate you know tribes and then uh Scandinavian king came over for a bit. It gets really weird and convoluted. Here you have an elf who's lived for an incredibly long amount of time. He goes back to the original Lara Doran, so you're talking a very long time ago. He is painting these bison, making them purple, for no other reason than he finds it amusing. And then he adds tiger stripes to it. And as he explains, you know, the, the, the humidity in the air and whatnot will rust away the, uh, uh, the, the painting quality so that it will look like it's a natural thing. Uh, you know, something that, that was made here very long ago. And so when humans, who are notoriously short-lived in his mind, come and view th- these paintings, they will assume it's from some ancient prehistoric you know, uh, society of humans. It's to ensure that no, you didn't take this land that you belonged here. Of course, the irony of this is that the elves didn't belong here either. Um, and uh, it, you know, it's all about you know, this land was all colonized throughout history by various different groups, but they all claim that this was their homeland. And history is this amorphous thing there, the, there's good facts and there's real facts um and that means that history is malleable history is changeable uh who's to say what's in the textbook is true at a certain point
1: Oh an old saying history is written by uh, written by the winners
0: yep exactly
1: that's very fitting Listen, I an old example i like
0: to pull is uh obviously you guys didn't have to go through it but the pledge of allegiance to the flag in The U.S. Mm -hmm. It was, it has changed over the years, and it wasn't until the 50s in which Under God was added randomly in the middle of, because, you know, America was founded on religious freedom. It's one of our tenets, and so to have a sudden random Christian thing is a bit weird. It was done in response to, uh, specifically, the the anti-Christian communist sex that uh, they were afraid of back then mccarthyism is uh scare. yep and basically we rewrote history (laughs) and said it was always there i can talk to people and as far as they're concerned it's been there since the founding fathers ignoring the fact that the pledge of allegiance wasn't created until 100 years after all of them were dead and the flag itself wasn't created until what 50 60 years after the founding of the country um and so that's our history. It's fake. It's not real, but it's what we're taught. At the end of the day, how much of history is true? And that that leads into, you know, I had um uh, I had a friend I lived with who was a history student and he talked about that uh once you get to a certain point in history, all you can do is you can read the sources, but the sources are inherently biased. Um so you have to read multiple sources and then pick out, you know, what is the common denominator in them, and and hope that was the truth. Uh, I used this example a couple chapters ago in one of my solo ones. But to your homeland, the Picts up in Scotland aren't actually called the Picts in any like any way that we know. It's the Roman name for them. You know, the ancient inhabitants of Scotland. Don't actually, we don't know what they're called. The Romans called them that, so that's what we call them, you know. And so, uh, the, the idea here is, you know, who's to say by similar Purple? They're extinct by your time, so who cares, right? <laughs> that to me, the, the idea of historical revisionism has been an aspect of, uh, of this series for a while, but will really come into focus, you know, in the next and final book. Uh, in a particular bit I know very well. So what has been your take on the way in which he has been handling, you know, the histories written by the victors, is that the fact that history is malleable, that it is changed, that it's biased.
1: It's a very fresh take on the fantasy genre. I again I'm not really an expert. I've like I've admitted in the past, I'm already an expert when it comes to fantasy. I have a very small pool of resources to offer um but I can say this very stands out amongst them in that it has that self-awareness like that. It connects to the real world in that sense, Like as you've just wonderfully discussed. Uh, and also, I just love the fact that Avalak just couldn't help but resist signing his name in a way that yep. no normal person would understand. But it's just there just to satisfy his own arrogance. That's such mm. a wonderful addition.
0: Mm-hmm. He, he's he's a piece of work. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get into more on in him next book. Um, he's a major recurring
1: figure. Um, but he's just such an asshole this entire time. I mean, this series has a lot of assholes, and compared to them, I find him somewhat likable. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a sad way just, uh, of how yeah. low the bar of uh, morality is in this series.
0: I mean, yeah, sure. Like, he's not... Crazy like Vilgax or anything, but he's still <laughs> like he's got this air of just—he's he, the kind of person that if you met him in real life, you would have to fight the urge to punch him.
1: Yeah, he'd definitely be one of those art frat bros at a university party who just brags about stuff. Yeah, like he has such
0: this air of superiority. He's the entire time he's talking to Geralt, and Geralt even calls him out on this you know, is that he treats Geralt like he's nothing, like he's a piece of meat, that he is a human. And he's like, you know, I'm I'm technically augmented. I'm not actually human, you know. um, And, but even then, that's just, we're apes to him. He even calls us apes. Because we're the product of evolution. Elves aren't. At least that's the way they think they are. Mm. Um, And so, you know, uh, as far as he's concerned... Humans are no different than the uh, than the ape that shoved a bone up his ass and shrieked for joy, and so that is that's his view of humans.
1: Would you say this is all a very deliberate allegory to religion, specifically Christianity? Because I was thinking the way you know he's creating these fake prehistoric paintings, it feels very reminiscent of uh, certain religious beliefs that you know Satan created dinosaur bones <laughs> just to mislead humanity, uh, and now we're talking about uh, evolution. And, you know, a lot of Christians are uh, anti-evolution. You know, they think we're made in God's image. So all this discussion is making me think that's a possible deliberate angle. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Um, Well, uh, I don't think we've ever gotten in this before as a Christian. I would say yes. Uh, Poland is a very Catholic country. Um, And... Uh Subkowski has been commenting on the Catholic Church as far back as the short stories, when she he has the not so subtle allegory for the Catholic Inquisition. <laughs> so I think what he's doing is definitely, you know, some sort of comment on the view of science and religion and how that relates. Because um, you know, the the thing about evolution is that I think, because it has enough scientific facts, that it did happen, but that God oversaw it. Because I am a religious person at the end of the day, and everybody's entitled to believe whatever they want, so if they say God wasn't involved, that's good for them. Uh, But for me, you know, I believe evolution happened, but God oversaw it, uh, which eventually led to the creation of us in his own image and that's that's a very modern view of religion uh because i've came to terms with a lot of things you know religion is a very personal thing to me versus something uh like i don't i don't go to organized religious churches because my relationship with god is unique it is mine not anybody else's i don't need a priest to tell me what i view and how i relate to god i know that in my heart and that's it with that, you know, you come from the understanding, you know, of this modern understanding, freedom of religion in in america, twenty first century view of religion, to let's port it over to Sukowski growing up in the aftermath of World War Two, in Poland. For a long time, you couldn't get divorced in Poland without asking for permission from a religious figure. So like, there is this sense over there, that uh, that he is talking about the the ridiculousness of specifically the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was, at one point, this is where we get the name from, canon, decided, hey, we don't think these bits of the Bible is true anymore, so we're going to cut it up and just, and just divvy it out. And it's just like, but this is the Word of God, so... <laughs> who are you random human to determine what god means or not you know that that makes no sense but you know that's where the term canon comes from and has caused all sorts of fights throughout the centuries uh both religious and fictional canon and so the idea here is that you know, as you were saying that some people are like, Satan invented dinosaur bones, blah, blah, you know, in the, the old creationist thing that the, the world is only a few thousand years old, blah, blah, blah. I think it is definitely a, a comment on that, um in a more of a bleak way that it's about uh the way in which uh history ebbs and flows and we change our perspectives on what was true, what was false, real facts versus good facts and that every bit of society influences that. Art, religion, political, all influences history um, in one way or another. Um, And and so we are viewing it from, you know, this history from someone who has very little interest in Geralt and then someone who has seen it all and has decided that it is all bullshit in aphalock and so you have sort of this uh dichotomy of is history influenced and how is it influenced i think he's asking the question he hasn't come up with an answer a definitive answer yet uh that will be next book uh where that really comes in the focus but he's he's posing the question. So yeah, it, I, I think it, there is some very clear religious influence going on there.
1: Oh right. interesting. It makes a nice difference from, say, Narnia, because that was also a series that was very heavily Christian-inspired, but where, you know, C.S. Lewis was putting his love of Christianity into that series, yeah. uh, this, this series is having a more critical view of it, so I find that difference quite fascinating. Yep. I
0: think that uh, exploring religion, whether you're religious or not, I think is a worthwhile thing, because... Yeah you understand different cultures and different understandings you know there, there, there's a question i remember in ironically the question um that uh, uh vic poses you know if god doesn't exist why do so many cultures have the idea of one and what does that mean and it's a question that is intensely rhetorical it's it, it place of the themes of the issue but it's not a question that can be answered, and is definitely not answered. And I think that that is fascinating. With Babylon Five, JMS he is an atheist, and yet he has uh, characters who are very religious in his in his work, um, and, and so he is examining through his own, uh, you know, his own psyche what religion means and how it has affected culture and i i think that is worthwhile uh i remember studying buddhism a, a few years back and being very fascinated by it i'm obviously christian so like i i had no interest in converting but i found buddhism an interesting religion because it's also a moral uh and philosophical outlook um and that that influenced The question, because denny O'Neill himself went on uh, a trip through Buddhism to understand himself post his alcoholism, and so uh, I think it it plays a big part in our lives, even if we're not religious. I think religion does play a big part in our lives and the way we view things, yeah, whether we understand it or not. So my only other question is: at the end of this chapter, we have to quote you. Witcher no more. What your general thoughts on the Witcher no more?
1: I feel like it was a long time coming. Like I feel like that moment of uh, Gal losing his medallion and just being rather distant about it uh, is such a proves to be such a stark contrast to how he started. You know, in the past he'd kill an army just to get that, that medallion back. It meant you know meant a lot to him in both a practical sense and that uh, helped detect monsters. And that it's essentially the closest he's got to a birthright. I guess that's one way to look at it. Uh, but yeah, I feel like this is a long time coming because he's not the Witcher we first read. Yep. Uh, he's gone through so much since then. You know, a lot of his characters and belief has been shaken. So I feel like him just being like, I'm not a Witcher. I ceased to be a Witcher at the Tower of Seagull, uh, at Broccoli, at the Bridge of Yuga. So he's talking about all these moments that's just compiled into this one mm-hmm. finale of I have to learn to live without a witch's medallion. And I love that. Uh, he's not a witch anymore. He's a dad on a quest, a vampage across this burning nation uh, to get his daughter back. And that's wonderful. I love it.
0: Yep. Uh, I, I posed this question uh, in my uh, in, in one of my solo ones in which uh, he gets the job to go after Nightingale and Anglome joins the group. He's effectively being contact, er, contracted to be an assassin. Mm. And we know for a fact that he does not take contracts on the humans, if at all possible. Mm. Uh, that's not that's not his job. His job is monsters, and so he has been confronted with the perversion of his job, and he and he went through with it because he knew that he needed the information that he needed to get to the Siri, and so he has, in a sense, not been a witcher for a long time because he was willing to drop his code to take this job that has nothing to do with being a witcher that was a perversion of the idea of a witcher just so he could get some information on Ciri and, uh, and he lists out the various different, you know, uh, times that he wasn't a witcher, you know, the the Tower of the Gold with, you know, uh, the fight against Vilgefortz and the, on Thanid and then the uh, uh, specifically the, the Battle of the Bridge on the Aruga you have a man who has realized he has been pretending. That, you know, we talked about this a long, long time ago when we started this, of... Mm,
1: uh, The comfort blanket.
0: Yep, Geralt is a witcher, but he hides behind that comfort blanket of what a witcher is, so he doesn't have to process his own emotions, his own feelings. And I'm the, the emotionless monster hunter who kills and gets money. And that has been demonstrably untrue for a long ass time. Uh, I would argue since the beginning. It, mm-hmm. was never, it was never there. It's what he pretended to be. Now his pretense has dropped. You know, he has grown a lot over the course of these books. And something I pointed out a couple of times has been that when Galt has lost everything is when he begins to grow because he has no defense. Mm. So right now he maybe believes Ceri is dead. He has some hope in, with Kira seeing a future version of her, but he's not guaranteed. He believes Yen has betrayed him. He's lost his Witcher medallion. Um, he's got he's missing a tooth. He's missing a bit of an ear, and he's um uh, had his uh, you know leg broken and it hasn't healed properly. He's he's not in good shape. Mm. He has lost a lot. And he's come to realize that I have to be who I am and not what I want to be. And, you know, he's he do, he's not the most mentally healthy person, as we've discussed. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, you know, he will attempt to regress, but maybe he realizes that he's being foolish. You know, he is he's is not a fully mature man yet. he is he's growing uh but he's got uh he's got some more growing to go through um and him giving up the witcher uh m- moniker, I think is really important because a witcher kills that mm. is what a witcher is designed to do. he is not here to kill he's here to protect not only is he here to protect he's here to save and i think it's it, it's important to realize that a witcher is. Is not some hero. They were intentionally designed to be a twisted version of a knight in shining armor. Uh, That was the intention of the creation of the Witcher idea in Spikowski's head. So, uh, him giving up being a Witcher to become this hero, for lack of a better word, Uh, and when comparing that to Pac Peron, who is the fairy tale knight in shining armor and how that has affected him i think is is really important to note that galt is a knight quite literally he's been knighted but he's not he has not accepted the role of the knight but he's beginning to Mm. he has become or becoming the knight in shining armor that saved the princess from the evil wizard for you know added irony just uh I really like uh Geralt's giving up the Witcher uh moniker. Um, th- this is a brief aside, but the Hexer, the short lived two thousand two T V show, did this. And uh you know, they they sped it up insanely fast. Uh but I uh I, I always appreciate it. It's one of my favorite bits of that show. Um, is that in modern times when we have a Netflix show that that sort of markets itself on cool monsters for the witcher to fight it was refreshing to see a tv series that was adapting this actually go with the themes and realize witchers aren't something to be heralded that witchers aren't Mm. saviors that they aren't heroes that they are monsters who kill monsters and Geralt has moved beyond that and I think that, uh, that that's something that the games harm as well it's because the, the games being sort of sequels,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, they have Geralt become a Witcher again, and it is just not how that should go. And that really bothers me uh, that Witcher is now this synonymous name for Dark Knight, you know, Dark uh, you know, Knight in shiny armor hero. They aren't... Geralt was never a Witcher he pretended to be, and I think that's important, mm. uh, is that now he's realized himself, I'm not one.
1: Yeah, he himself admitted the process went horribly wrong,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so he's always been a comedian, in a way, trying to fit into that role, into that setting, mm-hmm. but uh, even a butcher has feelings.
0: Yep, I, I, I like your your uh, calling it uh, Witcher no more, because Spider-Man no more, I thought that was cute.
1: Yeah. Plus, uh doctor
0: no more. My hoovian is showing. Yep, yep, yep. As well, I didn't really <laughs> connect it to that until you just said it. Yep that that makes <laughs> sense. My my mind just went straight to Spider
1: Man. <laughs> uh Naturally. <It's> all
0: good. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, like with Spider Man, it is almost a reverse. You know, of he's he's afraid of who he is, and so he gives it up, and then he realizes he has to be who he is. Mm. With this, it, it, it's almost the 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 reverse of that of realizing, oh, I've been pretending this entire time. I need to <laughs> actually be myself. Um, do you have any questions for me?
1: Yeah, so this kind of relates to what we were discussing earlier. Do you think the role of uh, fortune tellers and prophecies in stories such as these are harm or improve the narrative? Now, in past, in certain movies, like, uh, for example, the Alice in Wonderland Tim Burton remake, there's all this talk of the prophecy and stuff where, oh, you know, so and so will defeat the monster. I always thought that that kind of removed the tension of the story. Like, oh, it's it's going to happen, and it, mm-hmm. then it does happen. It's like, are we supposed to be surprised? It's already a big twist if if it was only foretold. told. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to see if you had any particular take on whether a prophecy can, I've add, add tension to a narrative, uh, allow room for possible subversion, or kind of limits it instead think it's a case-by-case basis when it comes to that yeah
0: that's valid because it's really how the writer uses it uh a prophecy can really really harm you in the fact that it you know you, you you go into all the classic tropes chosen one narrative blah 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 um you know we we were we were we just mentioned dr no more the you know the timeless children thing um and just eat in the prophecy in uh end of time uh, uh, uh the tenth doctor's mm. final episode, like all that's just bonkers and ridiculous, and I couldn't care less about. But then I have things like Babylon Five that make the prophecy so ambiguous that everybody has come away with a different reading of it, and the author. JMS has intentionally never given a concrete answer so that you can interpret it how you will. Um, I won't spoil what it is, since I know that you'll eventually go through Mm -hmm. Babylon 5 at some point. But there's a couple prophecies about Babylon 5, but the, the one I'm thinking about, you know, is intentionally ambiguous. It can be read in at least five different ways off the top of my head. I know that there's been more discussions on how it can be read. And then you have stuff like this, where it's informing the way the characters feel. Uh, Ciri has been pigeonholed, because of the destiny, uh, because of the prophecy, into what she is. No one has asked her, what do you want? Uh, Who do you want to be? Because the world doesn't care about that. The world cares about the prophecy, the, the child of destiny. And so we have seen in the long form, you know, over the course of these books, how prophecy has destroyed a little girl and turned her into a monster for no other reason than people believe the prophecy is true and never ask her how she feels. And I think that's the ongoing commentary when it comes to the Chosen One narrative, is that he's using this prophecy and how everybody's motivated by it, but how everybody has a different interpretation of it, to show that if you tell a young child you are destined for something, you are important, how to make it more relatable, let's say your parents tell you you're a very smart kid then that has negative consequences because every time the kid gets something wrong, they question, am I smart? Which then leads, because the way psychoses uh, you know, are born, leads to self-esteem issues. And so here we have that on the, 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 the massive scale of you are destined to save the world and be important. What does that do to someone? What if she just wants to hang out and... Eat apple pie. What does that mean in the grand scheme of things? That won't be remembered by history. And so that has destroyed her. She has become a monster because what everybody believes she is. This prophecy has destroyed a little girl. And so prophecies can be used to great effect, as in the case of Ceres Arc. They can also ruin a story. See end of time in Doctor Who, or they can be ambiguous enough that they are read in different ways, and everybody has a unique take on it. See Babylon Five. So I think it's really a case by case basis, and the 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 talentedness of the writer, and what they're trying to say with the prophecy. Is the prophecy there to? deconstruct a character and tear them apart like Siri or is the prophecy there just because that's what's required for our science fantasy or high flung fairy tale story? Mm-hmm. What is the intention of the prophecy not in universe but out of universe by the writer? Um I think that's when it really comes down to it. So, I'd say it's both. It can harm and it can help. It's really determinant on the the work itself um you know i would like if there are is to be a prophecy in my fiction i'd like it to have a purpose beyond it coming true mm-hmm. so in the case of this you know it's it, the prophecy is inherent to Siri's arctic um uh, because he Ciri is a deconstruction of chosen one narratives so, that's what I like my prophecies to be, as is ambiguous and to have a greater meaning beyond plot.
1: Yeah, multiple
0: choice. That's the way to go. Yep. If I'm to have a backstory, let it be a multiple choice. Good old mm-hmm. joker. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, that's, my, that's my take on prophecies. I think they neither harm nor, uh, nor hinder nor help. It's all about the way
1: they are used. Yeah. So, it's more so about building up the atmosphere. Correct. I guess one way to put it i think this has been a a real good dive mm-hmm.
0: Alrighty, uh so uh thank you for joining me um and i will be back again with chapter eight um and uh see you guys then bye bye